Thank you, Gibson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. And now we pray for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills that put it into practice. For the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, let me uh, read again for us the last verse of the passage, verse 48, where Jesus says, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ to all Christians. And uh, I wonder how you feel about it. Uh, some people, of course, will mock it. Uh, so a few years ago, an American country and western musician called Mac Davis wrote uh, a song. And uh, the chorus went something like this. I, I thought about singing it for you, but uh, I've repented of that. That would have been very unwise. But let me just read the chorus for you. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a wonderful man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Now I don't know whether that was Mac Davis's considered response to verse 48, uh, but if it was, I have to say that he completely misunderstood it, because the plain fact of the matter is that we can't be perfect in every way. It's beyond us. That is enormously humbling. Uh, for a start, it's humbling because none of us like to think that we've failed at anything, do we? And that explains, I think, why the religious leaders in Jesus' day interpreted the law of God in the way that they did. You see, as far as they were concerned, uh, God's law set the standards far too high. They couldn't possibly keep it. So what these religious leaders did was by a whole series of very clever devices, they managed to lower the standard, making it much easier, apparently, for people to obey. The result was that many Jews believed that they'd kind of leapt over the standards and had achieved them. Uh, I don't suppose they would have said for one moment that they thought they were perfect, but they were fully persuaded that they were good enough for God. Jesus, however, was not impressed. And uh, as we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus wanted his disciples to see the true purpose behind God's law. So what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is to raise the standard all the way back up to the place which God originally intended. No murder... Well, that includes even an outburst of temper. Don't commit adultery. Well, that forbids a lustful look, divorce and remarriage, except in certain rather specific circumstances that we looked at last week. 
So the standard that Jesus sets is perfect. And he says all his disciples must be perfect. The question, of course, is how on earth is that even possible? Well, we've seen that in this section of the sermon, Jesus gives us a series of six contrasts. And in each case, he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said, and then adding, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing, you see, is contrasting the teachers of the, the, sorry, the teaching of the rabbis and their interpretation of the law of God with his own authoritative and perfect interpretation. Now this morning we come to the last three of these contrasts and I think in each case the message is clear enough. Uh, Jesus says, speak the truth. He says, don't retaliate. And he says, love your enemies. So first then, speak the truth. Verses 33 to 37. Now again, uh, Jesus begins with what the rabbis were teaching in verse 33. Uh, Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. Now that isn't a quotation from any one particular law in the Old Testament, but it does reflect the purpose of a number of laws designed to stop people from making a vow and then breaking it. The basic principle was, stick to your word. If you promise to do something, make sure you do it. But the Pharisees, Pharisees, you see, like the the clever lawyers that they were, they looked very closely at the small print to see if there was a way around it. The law said that oaths made to the Lord must not be broken. But apparently, they said, that did not apply to oaths made to a lesser authority. Some of you will have heard of the, the Mishnah, Uh, The Mishnah was the name given to the Jewish code of law. I guess it was probably the equivalent to what we would call a constitution. And the Mishnah gave a whole section to the detailed consideration of oaths, when they're binding and when they're not binding. And so one rabbi, can you believe it, said if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow, but if you swear towards Jerusalem, then the vow is binding. It was the most dreadful form of nitpicking in order to justify lying. It was a classic example of religious people uh, diluting the commands of God to make it easier for people to obey. Uh, In that way, they could convince themselves that they had leapt over the standard required by God. And Jesus, you see, responds by pointing to the absurdity of it. How absurd it was to make a distinction between swearing before God and swearing before anything else, because, of course, everything is related to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so, verse 34, have a look at it. Heaven is God's throne. Verse 35, the earth is his footstool, Jerusalem is his city. Verse 36, 
Even our heads are his. Uh, I suppose we might use dye to hide the actual colour of our hair, but the colour of our hair, uh, whether it is black or red or white or grey, that is determined by God. The whole point is that there is no such thing as a trivial oath. All oaths are related to God. Now, for that reason, I think we would expect Jesus' conclusion to be keep every oath you make, whether you swear by Almighty God or perhaps your honour or your family or anything else, keep your oaths. That's, I think, what we would expect Jesus to say. What Jesus actually says is far more radical. Verse 34, But I tell you, do not swear at all. Rather, verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And uh, the meaning there is either the evil within us or, or the evil one himself, referring, of course, to the devil. Now, you see, Jesus is pointing here to the principle behind the command. God's great concern is that we tell the truth. And uh, the laws relating to oaths are just one expression of that principle. Uh, they're not designed to limit the area in which truth-telling is important. Far from it. We are always to tell the truth. We are to be men and women of our word. Uh, I was interested this week to discover that a, a professor at the University of Virginia, in his research, has discovered that white lies are told in a fifth, 20%, of all conversations lasting for 10 minutes. Uh, how he worked that out, I have no idea. One of his discoveries is that for some reason, that percentage increases to one in three if the individuals concerned having the conversation have been to university. In other words, those of us who have been to college or university apparently tell more white lies than anybody else. That's something to think about this week. Here are some of the most common lies, white lies, the professor discovered. The gift is perfect. I work out three times a week. I'm losing weight. We'll fix it on Monday. <laughs> we smile. But, but do we tell the truth? Always? If we do, we won't ever have to strengthen what we say by making oaths. We shouldn't have to swear on the Bible. We shouldn't have to cross our hearts and hope to die. Our bare word should be enough. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. It's perhaps a rather trivial example, but when we first arrived in South Africa 18 years ago, I was caught out on a number of occasions by my complete failure to understand the South African meaning of the word now. Uh, so somebody would say to me, I'll be with you now. And, uh, rightly or wrongly, I assumed that meant now. But it didn't. 
what they meant was in a while. And uh, it took some time, maybe several years actually, before I learned that now means shortly, just now means when I'm ready, and now now means now. <laughs> now of course it's not difficult, is it, to see how that usage develops. Um, so many people, so many people said, I'll meet you now, but then didn't bother to turn up, that the word now lost its meaning. So, if you want to say, I'll meet you now, and you meant it, well, you had to say, I'll be with you now, now. And there are lots of examples like that, aren't there? I mean, um, take the word literally. Why do we say, there were literally millions? Uh, often it's because we don't really expect people to believe us, so we put the word literally in there, as if to say, we really mean this. And yet the interesting thing is that um, when we add the word literally, think about it, we don't actually mean it at all, do we? So you might say there were literally millions of people in the crowd. Really? Are you sure about that? And it's so very easy, this is perhaps the serious point, it's so very easy, isn't it, to slip into the habit of exaggeration, perhaps to make what we're saying more interesting, or maybe to boost our reputation. But Jesus wants us to speak the truth, not more and not less. We're to stick to our word. So let's think of a more serious example. What happens when a late invitation arrives? So there you are. You've already said, yes, I'm going to come to the young adults' evening. Uh, or I'm, I am going to go to that birthday supper for the person at work that I don't really like very much. And then out of the blue, there is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and watch Roger Federer playing tennis in the soccer stadium. Will we stick to our word? Will our yes be yes? And you see, the point is we are to speak the truth. We are to stick to our word. Because our words matter. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do here. Just one um, qualification. It's interesting, some people have understood that Jesus here is forbidding his disciples from ever taking any oath whatsoever even in court, or even swearing the oath of allegiance to the state. And we can understand why people might think that, because Jesus does say in verse 34, don't swear at all. But there is, I think, good reason to be cautious about understanding those words in an overly literalistic way, because we need to consider Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention is that we are to speak the truth. And we should never have to resort to taking oaths. But he's not talking about a situation where somebody else requires us to take an oath. And, you know, we live in a sinful world. People don't tell the truth. So it's understandable that governments and law courts require people to take an oath because they can't trust us to tell the truth if we don't. If that troubles your conscience, this is rather interesting, 
We should remember the example of the Lord Jesus himself because in this same Gospel, uh, at the trial of Jesus, the high priest said this to Jesus, I charge you under oath before the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And very interestingly, Jesus does not refuse to speak. No, he replied, presumably under oath, saying, yes, it is as you say. So we miss the point, I think, if we refuse to speak under oath in any circumstances. Jesus is simply saying, speak the truth all the time, say what you mean, and if you do, you won't have to take an oath. Because, you see, swearing an oath when we don't have to, if you think about this, it's actually a confession of our fundamental dishonesty, isn't it? It's as if we're saying, you know what, I can quite understand why you don't believe me most of the time, but now you really must believe me. I really do mean it because I'm taking an oath. So no, speak the truth always. Second, don't retaliate. Verses 38 to 42. Now Jesus here is dealing with situations in which we might have been wronged. How are we to respond when we have been wronged? Well, the Jewish rabbis quoted the law of Moses in the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and that is an accurate quotation from God's word, and you'll find it in Exodus, and in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy. And perhaps that makes us scratch our heads a bit. Uh, You might be thinking, well, if that is the word of God, how can Jesus disagree with it? which is what he appears to be doing in verse 39, when he says, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. At first sight, it looks, doesn't it, as if there's a bit of a conflict between God's word in the Old Testament and the word of Jesus in the New Testament. But friends, we seriously misunderstand these words of Jesus if we take them in that way. Because it's not the word of God that Jesus is challenging, it's rather the rabbi's interpretation of it. Now, let me explain this, because last week uh, we noticed that in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often begins with the words, you have heard that it was said, or something similar. Now, here's the distinction you just need to notice. When Jesus is quoting directly from the Old Testament, he begins in a different way. He says, it is written, or it stands written. But that isn't the case here, is it? Jesus begins in verse 38 by saying, you have heard that it was said. In other words, Jesus is quoting the spoken word of the rabbis, the religious leaders, rather than the written word of the Bible. So when he contrasts his own teaching here with what he's just quoted, he's disagreeing with what the religious leaders were saying, but not with the words of Scripture. Now, let's unpack that a bit further. 
It's true that God's law did teach eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that is a really important principle that you find in several legal systems around the world today. It's called the principle of exact retribution. The idea behind it is that the punishment should fit the crime. That's the principle. That the punishment should not be out of proportion to the offence. Now it's very clear from Deuteronomy chapter 19 that Moses expected judges to apply these principles and not individual citizens. So the idea was that if an individual Israelite was wronged, it was the job of the judges to determine the punishment. And the punishment was to be in accordance with the principle stated uh, by Jesus in verse 38. In fact, the application wasn't as brutal as it sounds. It wasn't literally an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, because by the first century and possibly before that, that damages were usually awarded instead of a, a physical penalty. Murder, interestingly, being the only exception to that. But the principle still applied. The damages were to be appropriate to the crime. And that's how justice was administered. Not by the aggrieved party, but by the authorities. And that's how the, the law of verse 38 was supposed to be worked out. And it's a principle that still applies today. I mean, think about it. You know, we're appalled, aren't we, if a rapist gets let off with a fine or just a few months in prison. And if you look back in history, we're equally appalled, aren't we, uh, by stories from history telling us about people who were found guilty of maybe a petty crime, just stealing a few pennies or something, who were then executed. Plenty of stories in history are like that. No, the punishment should fit the crime. No more, no less. Now, we might not express it in precisely these primitive terms, but the principle still applies today. And it was supposed to be applied by judges with a view to limiting or restraining retaliation. But you see, what the Pharisees did was they applied it to personal relationships and they used it to justify revenge. In other words, they said, yep, absolutely fine, you can get your own back. As long as you don't harm the person who's harmed you, more than he harmed you in the first place. But yes, you can take revenge, that's fine. But you see, that desire for personal revenge is never encouraged by God's law. And it is never to be the attitude of Christ's disciples. That's why Jesus says in verse 39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, we've got to be careful how we understand that statement today. Uh, some of you will have heard of the Russian novelist Tolstoy. He said that Christ here was uh, forbidding armies, police forces, magistrates, judges. 
In other words, Tolstoy took the words of Jesus as an absolute statement. But that has to be completely wrong, doesn't it? Because elsewhere, the Bible is crystal clear that God gives governing authorities the responsibility to exercise justice and to punish wrongdoers. God does want them to resist evil people. You read all about that, for example, in Romans 13. But you see, the point is, Jesus here is not addressing the state. And he's not speaking to individuals who represent the state, be they magistrates or policemen or whatever. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to you and me concerning our personal relationships. And that's clear, isn't it, from the illustrations that he uses. So, verse 39, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, in that culture, a blow like that was a massive personal insult. And uh, the natural response, when we're insulted in that kind of a way, is to respond in kind. But Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't retaliate. And also don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, because the turning of the other cheek is not an aggressive statement. You could read it that way. Um, You could read it as, okay, I will turn the other cheek, go on, do it again, see if I care. But no, that's not what Jesus means. Perhaps the phrase that gets closest to the meaning is, take it on the chin. I think that's probably as close as we can get. But it is profoundly unnatural, isn't it, for sinful men and women to take it on the chin. Perhaps a friend laughs at our appearance and you might be tempted to respond, well, you should see yourself in the mirror. Or maybe the boss, your employer, criticises some work that you've done and we immediately think of that extra half day that he took off last week without permission or the complete mess that he made of that project and we say to ourselves, well, you're not exactly Mr. Perfect, are you? No, says Jesus, take it on the chin, turn the other cheek. By the way, we're not to interpret that literally in all circumstances. So, for example, if somebody is uh, climbing their way into your house to steal, you're not meant to look the other way and just let them get on with it. You are meant to call the police. You are meant to call ADT. You're meant to chase them away, whatever it is. That is the right thing to do. And of course, if you think about it, that's not personal revenge. They're doing something wrong, and it's right for you to try and stop them. So turning the other cheek does not mean simply ignoring what is wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean not handing somebody over to the police if the situation requires it. Jesus continues, verse 40, And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In other words, what he's saying is, don't stand on your rights. I think, if I may say so, I think South Africans are very keen to stand on their rights. No, don't stand on your rights. It's better to be wronged 
than to get involved in some ever-increasing, ever-escalating dispute. Uh, A number of years ago, there was a program on television called Neighbours from Hell. I wonder if you saw it. Uh, Very often in those programs, the dispute would uh, begin over some very petty, trivial issue. Perhaps a car parked in the wrong place or maybe a rather noisy party in the garden on a public holiday, or something like that. But then pride kicks in, and pride gets poured onto the problem like paraffin on the flames, and the thing becomes an inferno. And before you know it, the legal battles that follow go on for years. The only people that benefit in the end are the lawyers. So don't get involved in that, says Jesus. Our behaviour, our behaviour, think about this, should never make a dispute worse. Never. We're to be throwing cold water on the flames all the time. And there's no room for legalism. We are to give even more than is demanded. Uh, The mother-in-law might have been extremely unreasonable. After all, she has no right to insist that she sees the grandchildren every month, but why not make it once a fortnight anyway? Verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There's no aggression in that. It's not, I'll show him. I'll go two miles and I'll smile as if I'm enjoying it. It's not that. He's calling us to to a passive acceptance of the demands of others, even when those demands are unjust. We mustn't allow our pride to take over. It mustn't be a case of, how dare he ask me to do something like that? I'm far too important to be doing the washing up. No, we're to accept the task cheerfully, even doing more than was asked. And then verse 42, give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now that, of course, is a massive challenge here in South Africa, isn't it? The beggar at your front door has got no legal claim upon you. Uh, They might not even thank you for the gift you give, whatever it is. And uh, depending on where you are in the month, the budget might be rather tight. But their need is obvious... And if I'm in a position to help, I'm not to ask the question, well, what's in this for me? And if I perhaps make a small loan to someone in need rather than a gift, I might never get it back. But I'm not to turn away from someone in need who wants to borrow if I'm able to help. In fact, the the only limit to this kind of generosity is going to be love. There is a limit. Think about it. You see, sometimes it's not actually the loving thing to do to give or to lend. Uh, In fact, in many cases here, it's not the loving thing to give money, is it? Uh, Because it will often be used to buy drugs or alcohol, which, depending on who we're dealing with, might be the very thing that's destroying their lives. But it might be the loving thing to give them food or cool drink if you've got it 
Or if they need money for a train or for a taxi, again, the loving thing might be, don't give them the money, but rather say, well, let me give you a lift to the station, or let me walk with you to the station. So love demands that sometimes we do not give. And we mustn't make the mistake of interpreting these statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as unbending rigid laws, because they're not. They are illustrations of a principle. And the principle is clear. When you find yourself in one of the situations we've been describing, don't resist. And when you're wronged, don't retaliate. And then lastly and very briefly, love your enemies. Verses 43 to 48. Now again, it's the same pattern. Uh, Jesus began with what they were teaching in the synagogue, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Now it's true that the Old Testament law did command love for neighbour. But my friend, you will search in vain for any verse in the Old Testament that tells you to hate your enemy. It seems that uh, some of the Jews were teaching that the law commanded that we should love our neighbour, but it didn't actually say anything about who our neighbours actually are. So we should love love our neighbours, but those people who aren't our neighbours, well, we can hate them. And uh, we certainly can hate our enemies. Some of you will know that there was a uh, monastic community called Qumran, uh, or at Qumran, by the Dead Sea in the first century. And uh, they've discovered scrolls from that community, and on one of those scrolls was written the phrase, love the brother, hate the outsider. So who does God's law command me to love? Who is my neighbour? And you'll remember, of course, that was precisely the question, wasn't it? that prompted Jesus to teach the parable of the Good Samaritan. What was the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan? It was that my neighbour is not just my fellow countryman, but it's anybody that I'm in a position to help. They are my neighbour. There is literally to be no restriction on love. I wonder this morning if you believe that. There is to be no restriction on love. We are to love everyone, even those who don't love us. Someone has put it rather well. They put it like this. Love for those who like us is ordinary. Love for those who are like us is self-love. Love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. Love for those who dislike us is revolutionary. That's rather good, isn't it? Don't you think? And that, actually, that last one, love for those who dislike us, that is the love to which Jesus Christ calls you and me this morning. But I tell you, verse 44, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, it's not just Christians, is it, who were able to enjoy the lovely sunshine that we've had through most of the past week. Everybody's been able to enjoy it. Uh, Those who worship God and those who never give him a second thought. And God shows his love to everybody regardless of what they think about him. And that is the standard for Christians. And it is radically different, isn't it, from the standard that we see all around us. Verse 46 tells us that most people just love the people who love them. Even the hated tax collectors were doing it. But those who follow Jesus Christ are to be different. Verse 47, even the pagans are friendly towards their brothers. But we are to show exactly the same loving attitude to outsiders and to our enemies. The personal challenge is obvious, isn't it? Perhaps you can think of someone who has wronged you, someone who perhaps hates you, maybe at college, might be at work, might be in the family, and you're thinking to yourself, am I really expected to love him or her? And Jesus says, yes you are. But it starts inside. It starts inside. Uh, I may not like him or her, but I can determine, I can resolve not to be bitter. And if that's hard, start by praying. It's very hard indeed to carry on hating someone with a vengeance if you're praying for them every day. Try it. You really can't do it. You see, we're we're finding ourselves here challenged with a divine standard. But it is a standard Jesus expects from all disciples. There are no excuses. And so he concludes verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now those words are a very good summary of the section from verses 43 to 48, but they're actually a brilliant summary of the whole chapter. Be perfect. Now if you've nodded off, come back to me now, because what I'm about to say is the most important thing in the whole sermon. I started this morning by asking you how you feel when you hear Jesus say to you, be perfect. Uh, Are you perhaps like Mac Davis? Uh, Do you suffer from the illusion that you are perfect in every way? I'm sure you don't. I'm sure you don't. But the point is that if God's law makes us feel good about ourselves, that means we've lowered it, just like the Pharisees did. Most likely, my prayer is that most of us, when we hear Jesus say, be perfect, that most of us feel wretched and feel helpless. And strangely, that is a very, very good sign indeed. Because once we see the true implication, the true fulfilment of God's law, its deep meaning, we will realise we can never do it. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, that ought to show us 
all the ways we've blown it just in the past week. And if it does, if we do feel wretched and helpless, well, there's good news in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't there? Because Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see, it is only those people who acknowledge their spiritual poverty before God who receive the comfort and consolation of the gospel. Nobody else does. Now, it's true that we can't live up to God's standards, but there is one man who did. He always spoke the truth. Indeed, on one occasion he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he was arrested and mocked and beaten, he didn't retaliate. There was no trace of bitterness. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No, he was perfect, as his heavenly Father is perfect. And yet, he was willing to die on the cross to take the punishment for imperfect people like me and like you. And so if we trust him, we can be absolutely sure we're forgiven and that God accepts us in Christ as if we've never done anything wrong, as if we are perfect. So have you trusted in Christ? Because in him we are perfect. And surely, surely there's only one proper response to all of this. It is to long to live out in practice the status that God has given us, which means, means hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So let's ask for grace to do that this week. Let's pray. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in a short prayer. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Loving Lord, we hear the command and remember with shame the countless ways we've fallen short and do fall short every day. But we know that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that when we turn to you confessing our sin, and at the same time, hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be filled, that you will supply the divine resources we need to live lives that are truly pleasing to you. So help us, Lord, to walk closely with you this week, moment by moment, day by day, trusting that you will strengthen us as every situation requires so that we might bear the family likeness as children of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.